James 5, verses 13 through 16. Lord willing, let me read it for us. James says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In the early 1900s, the renowned missionary Amy Carmichael, serving in India, had one of her co-workers, Panamal was her name, stricken with cancer. Now, if you're familiar with Amy Carmichael's story, there's exceptional biographies about her. By the way, Elizabeth Elliot has one, Ian Murray has one, the Ian Murray one I think is in her bookstore. It's an incredibly gripping story about this lady who left the world behind to pour out her life in India and uh, rescue people from trafficking and um, just unspeakable acts of evil that were happening there and the way she brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to that corner of the world. It's, a, it's an incredible story. One of her most trusted co-workers, Panama, stricken with cancer, um, Amy Carmichael, was familiar with the passage we just read and wanted elders to come and pray over Panama. But again, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Amy didn't have really a church that was there. She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't an elder, obviously. And so she had a hospital, <laughs> she had medical workers there that could diagnose her, but she didn't have elders that could pray for this woman. And so she began praying. The Lord would provide elders to pray for Panama. One of her friends, um, who was an elder, did take uh, a train down there and was able to come and, and pray uh, over this faithful worker. The description of this event is uh, provided by Elizabeth Elliot in her biography of Amy Carmichael. Let me read it for you. It was a solemn meeting around the sickbed. The women were dressed as usual in their handloom saris, but white ones for this special occasion. They had laid a palm branch across Panama's bed as a sign of victory, and they accepted whatever answer God might give, certain that whatever it was to be, physical healing or, or not, he would give victory and peace. This was an extreme act of faith, but certainly accompanied by anguish of doubt and a desire which had to be brought again and again under the authority of the master. Yet from the end of that meeting forward, Panama grew worse. The pain increased. Her eyes grew dull as she lingered for days in agony and pain until she reached her limit and her warfare was accomplished. Here's a scenario that is well known in church history. Amy couldn't have followed the uh, procedure laid out in James 5 any more accurately than she did, and yet the person the elder prayed for and anointed with oil and gathered around died. What are we to make of that? Is that an example of unanswered prayer? Is that an example that James 5 doesn't mean what it says, or how do we assimilate this? And we understand all the way back from James chapter 1 that it's not always God's will to heal, that sometimes it is God's will to bring people through difficulty through trials through suffering for the purpose of sanctifying them for his glory and our good sometimes it's God's will to heal people that are afflicted and sometimes it is not and the difference between those whom he heals and those whom he not doesn't heal is not the faith of the one praying we understand that it's made clear from James 1 rather it's the will of God 
And yet in James 5, you come across this description that seems to indicate if there is someone is sick, let the elders gather around him and pray for them. And if the prayer is made in faith, the person will be healed and raised up. In fact, uh, charismatics in this passage would teach that, that if you pray with faith, the person will be healed. And if the person's not healed, it means you lacked faith. I know some Christians that even say from this passage that you should claim healing in every circumstance. Whenever you pray for a sick person, you should claim that they're healed because your, your words now have the faith and the power that James gives you here. In Catholicism, they take this verse to teach uh, final unction, the seventh sacrament. Last rites, we're anointing the dead with oil. So they, get, they get work around the whole idea that the person will be raised up in this life and say it's speaking of the next life, of course. What are we to make of this passage? How come two people can be sick? Both can have the same group of elders pray for them with the same amount of faith and one is healed and the other not. And I I hope by the end of this morning that you have a new appreciation for this passage because I think this is a very profound passage. I think it's a very complex passage and it, it teaches some very substantial spiritual truths that will encourage all of you. And there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye at the first reading. And you have little markers of this, that this is a complicated passage, because at first blush, it doesn't seem to fit in with this context. Its context is about being patient and suffering. Its context is about restoring sinners to their their crooked way. And then in the middle of this is a paragraph about the the sick being prayed for and, and healed. So I hope this morning at the end of our time, you'll have a new appreciation, a new application of this passage. This passage begins just with a brief outline. Three times in life to pray. There's three times in life you should pray. Now, we know from other Bible passages that you should pray at all times, right? <laughs> Paul says to the Thessalonians, uh, pray at, without ceasing. Um, Let your prayers and supplications be named, known to God, he tells the Philippians, with all of your requests being brought before him. So you're supposed to always pray. But in always is three specific examples of always. <laughs> And those are the examples James gives here. First, is anyone among you suffering, he says. This word suffering, it speaks of external circumstances. It speaks of things outside of you weighing down on you. This is a word that's used elsewhere in the the New Testament. It means in other places just to suffer misfortune. For example, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 9, Paul uses it to describe being bound in chains. Paul's put in prison, he's bound in chains, and he says the gospel's not chained, and you should take encouragement from that. You can throw missionaries in jail, you can throw evangelists in jail, you can throw pastors in jail, you can't throw the gospel in jail. You can handcuff the apostle, put him in the clink, but the gospel still goes freely around the world. And that's the word here for being in hardship in jail. 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, Paul says, be sober-minded, endure hardships, that's this word. It's just the normal part of a Christian life. There will be difficult things that come your way because of your faithfulness to Christ. That will happen. You're supposed to endure them patiently, sober-mindedly. Think clearly about them. And here in James, he says, when it happens to you, you are supposed to pray. When persecution and opposition come your way, you bring them before the Lord. You pray. The second time you're supposed to pray is when you're cheerful, he says. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I know it's not the word for pray. It's the word for singing praise, but who are you singing praise to, huh? I mean, this is another form of praying. If you're suffering, you pray. And if you are rejoicing, pray. If you're facing hardships, pray. And if you don't have hardships in your life, celebrate that. Be happy about it. Be cheerful about it and sing praises to God. If God has seen fit to lead a trial into your life, pray to him. 
Ask him for wisdom, James says. Ask him for wisdom and faith and you'll receive it. If God hasn't brought a trial into your life, you should be thankful and sing your song of praise to him. That word for cheerful literally means courageous. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated courageous. And so if, you have, if you're in chains for the gospel, give thanks to God. And if you have courage in the gospel, give thanks to God. Sing songs to him about it. And then you get your third time you're supposed to pray. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Any among you sick? And that seems kind of out of nowhere. We haven't been talking about physical sickness. We've talked about uh, patience and suffering earlier on in chapter 5. We talked about persecution from the rich earlier on in chapter 5. We've talked about the dangers of worldliness and of pride. Sickness is kind of out of left field. And so I want to look at this word a little bit more carefully. The word sick is astheneo, and astheneo is the, the Greek word for strength, for power, for, for energy, for being strong. It's a muscle word. <laughs> Incredible Hulk, that's astheneo. And in Greek, when you add a, an A in front of the word, it means not that. And so the word for strength, you know, be strong and courageous, this is the not in front of that. So when you don't have strength, when you lack physical strength, when you lack spiritual courage, and that's why this word can mean sick or it can mean weak in spirit. It certainly means physical sick. It's used that way in the New Testament. I think most often, uh, for example, in Luke's gospel, Luke the physician, it's the word he uses to talk about sick people Jesus healed. In 2 Timothy, Paul uses it to describe Trophimus, who was left sick on an island. Lazarus was sick, John says, and about to die. That's all this word. But this word means so much more than physical sickness. And so I want, bear with me for the next five minutes because I'm going to give you a tour of how this word is used in the New Testament. And it's not just to give you a word study. It's because I want you to get a full picture of what James means when he says you should ask the elders to pray for you. Through most of the New Testament, this word means worn down. It means, I think the best English word is beleaguered that you feel attacked and you don't have the internal strength to stand. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 12 a false teacher who's infiltrated the church and is tormenting him. And Paul says the lesson from that, he prayed for God three times to remove that false teacher and God told him, no, I want you to learn that my strength is sufficient for you in your weakness. That's this word. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, Paul says his takeaway from all this is that he should be content whether in weakness, insults, calamities, or persecution. That's this word again, weakness. To keep him humble, the Lord gives him this affliction. Later, he tells the Corinthians that Christ is not weak in dealing with us, but powerful. It doesn't mean Christ isn't physically sick when he deals with us. It means he, Christ has moral turpitude. Christ has moral strength conviction when he deals with us although he says second corinthians 13 verse 3 that christ was crucified in weakness raised in power that's the same word again christ was crucified in his astheneo he was crucified when he was lacking the 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 physical strength so to speak and of course he had the wearing down on the inside he's praying for this cup to pass from him he was sweating drops of of blood with the anguish he had that's this word of course paul's enemies accused him of this they said hey don't listen to paul (laughs) because his letters are strong but his physical presence is weak again this word they said yeah he'll boss you around with his pen but he shows up and he's weak sauce don't listen to him 
2 Corinthians 11, verse 29, Paul says, okay, who among you is weak and I'm not weak as a pastor? There's people that feel beleaguered in the church. It weighs the pastors and the elders of the church down. If any among you, and of course this isn't physical sickness because uh, it doesn't mean if you're sick, I'm going to catch it. It means as elders, if there's people in the church that are feeling beleaguered in the faith, they're weighed down. The elders feel that. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, I am glad when I am weak because then I'm strong. I'm glad when I'm weak. He tells the Corinthians that the wisdom of man, (laughs) it's more foolish than the wisdom of of God. In fact, he says the, the foolishness, the weakness of God is the word, is stronger than the strength of man. The weakest point of God is stronger than your strongest point. Do you get that? It doesn't mean that God literally has a weak point. He's making the point that take all the attributes of God, what you think the weakest part of God's attributes are, it's stronger than you. Romans 14. Paul says, describing a new convert, he should be able to eat any food he wants, but he doesn't have the, the spiritual maturity to make an ethical distinction. So there's food offered to idols, and he doesn't know if he should eat it or not eat it, or he doesn't know if it was offered to idols or not. He doesn't know how to handle the situation. So Paul says the strong Christian can eat all foods, but the weak Christian might eat only vegetables. That's not a diss on vegetarianism, although feel free to make your own implications. (laughs) He doesn't say if you eat a carrots and vegetables only diet, you will be physically weak. That's not his point. It means if you say, I don't want to eat this kind of food because it's unclean, that's a demonstration of spiritual weakness. And so what are you supposed to do with that kind of spiritually weak person? You know, eat a pork chop in front of him so he learns? (laughs) And the answer is no in Romans 14 verse 1. Rather, you welcome the brother who is weak in the faith. That's this word. Romans 8 verse 3, the law was weakened by the flesh. I mean, the law couldn't give you the strength to obey it. It was weakened because of the flesh. Second Peter, Peter commands husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. That's this word. It's translated weaker there, and I think the better understanding, I don't think it means that wives aren't as physically strong as husbands, although that is generally, generally the case. <laughs> I think of a few exceptions. I won't name names. <laughs> But it means the woman is, is more, de- more precious, like the glass vase as opposed to the, the pots. You put the glass vase at the front door, not the pots at the front door. <laughs> so Paul says, hu- Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way because she's a more precious vessel, weaker in that regard. That's this word. That's how it's used in the rest of the New Testament. I have other examples too, but I, I think I've made the point, but I've got a few more anyway. <laughs> Hebrews 7, verse 8, the first commandment of the Old Testament was set aside because it was weak. Or Jesus to his disciples in the garden who couldn't pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So this word certainly includes physical sickness, of course. But generally, it includes the person who is worn down, the person who is beleaguered, the person who feels overwhelmed by the world. And that is often connected to physical sickness, isn't it? When you think through your own lives, and you, I mean, you know how you feel physically when you have the flu or you've got the cold. You're curled up in a blanket and you want to go to sleep and you want tea and you want the door closed and the blinds closed and you want quiet. <laughs> Those wretched birds. <laughs> That's how you feel when you're sick and you're angry at the world because you're sick. And sometimes you feel like that spiritually. 
and you don't have the strength to endure, often that is brought about because of physical sickness, isn't it? But often it's not. This is what Paul, or James means here in verse 14. Are any among you in that category? Do you feel beleaguered by the world? Do you feel beaten down? Do you feel worn out? Do you feel weak? Let me give you a great practical example from the book of James. James chapter 1. You're going through a trial. You know that the trial is from the hand of the Lord for your good and for his glory. You know that because he says it. You know that if you respond to the trial by self-pity and complaining and by sinning, then it is no longer a trial. Now it is a temptation. We talked about this at length back in chapter 1. So the same, let's say sickness, the same sickness comes to you. Okay? If you receive it as from the Lord, you receive the cancer diagnosis as from God to sanctify you and strengthen you spiritually, to cause you to value the important things more importantly and the unimportant things to discard. It's purifying you. It's persevering you in your faith. If you receive it that way, it is from God. It is a trial for his glory and for your good. On the other hand, you get that same cancer diagnosis and you respond to it by complaining and grumbling and and being angry at God and saying, why me? I don't deserve this. I prayed for it to go away. Why, why, why? This is not fair. It is no longer a trial. Now it is a temptation and it is leading you to sin and you cannot say that is from God because God doesn't tempt anyone. He himself isn't tempted by evil. He wouldn't tempt you. You're tempted when you're lured away by your own desires. And so you have to back the car up, you know, back the car up, so to speak, and go back to the starting point and say, you know what? This is not going to be from, from my sin. My own desires aren't going to cause me to sin in this. I'm going to receive this as being from the Lord. And then it is back from a temptation back to a trial. You have to have that difference in your mind. Trials refine you. Temptations weaken you. Trials lead you to Christ's likeness. Temptations lead you to sin. Trials give you confidence. Temptations give you doubt. So it's the same external circumstance, the same chains, the same cancer, the same sickness. But one is from the Lord and one is not. And the only distinguishing feature is how you respond. And I hope you remember that from James 1 because it's a huge part of the book of James. So you get that, okay? The phone call comes, cancer, or your friend has died unexpectedly, or whatever the bad news is, whatever the trial is. So you know I want this to be a trial, not a temptation. But is it ever that simple? (laughs) I mean, you you receive the diagnosis and you say, okay, I know this is from God, and I'm going to receive it as from him and be sanctified by it, and the days go on and the weeks go on, and it starts to slide into being a temptation. And you start to question God's goodness and you start to question what he's doing and you start to doubt his wisdom and doubt that he's hearing your prayers. I mean, at what point does it go from temptation to trial or trial to temptation? Is it black and white? Is it a light switch on and off? Now I'm receiving this as a, as a trial. Oh, now I'm receiving it as a temptation. It's not cut and dry. You know, day two, you're like, I'm golden. This is entirely a a trial, zero percent of temptation. Okay, week two. All right, it's eighty percent a trial, twenty percent of temptation. Month two, eh, more like fifty-fifty. I mean, it's never that clear cut. And over time, you feel beaten down. 
you feel like the foundations of your faith are eroding away. They're being battered by this trial and the sand is being taken out to sea and you don't know what to think. You feel weak. What are you supposed to do? Just flex and be strong? <laughs> if you're weak, James verse 5, 14, call the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Notice that James, a couple observations real quick before we keep going. I want to try to get through this passage. But a couple observations from this real quick. First, the burden of this is on the sick person. It's on the weak person. The weak person should call. The elders don't know what's going on inside everybody. We don't know. We can guess. We ask how you're doing. We can guess. But we don't know. And if you feel like this is you, if you feel like your faith is being eroded, if you feel weak when it comes to facing the world, you have to ask for help. The person who is weak, they're the ones that call for the elders of the church. Another interesting observation, this is interesting to me, that James is the oldest New Testament book. It's the first New Testament book written, other than maybe Matthew. And in this, James is already operating under the assumption that Christians will be part of a church and there will be elders. He takes it as a given. This is before First and Second Timothy, before Titus. James already has a worldview, likely from his, his brother's teaching in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He already has the worldview that there will be churches and they will be led by elders. But here, you, it's a little window into this. This is all James says about elders right here. They should be praying. <laughs> And this matches what you see in the book of Acts where the elders say we can't go, for example, take care of the, the widows who need food because our ministry is one of the word and of prayer. And you see what that looks like fleshed out here. If you're spiritually weak or if you're physically weak with sickness or spiritually weak for whatever reason and you're, you feel beleaguered, ask the elders to come pray. And they'll pray over him, it says. That's, this is the same word in the Septuagint from Elisha who prays over the, the boy who's died on the bed, who covers his body. And this lets you know when you're coming to the elders for prayer, they lay their hands on you. They surround you. They put their hands on you. We do this at Emmanuel. The person sits down and the elders lay hands on them and we're standing around them. That's this kind of image here that their elders are praying over you. And there's this phrase, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is the anointing him with oil is what commentators call a contemporaneous verb. In other words, simultaneous to the prayer, the person's being anointed with oil. Now, this word anointed, it's not the word, it's not, there's a Greek word for symbolically anointed with oil, like a dab of oil on your head to symbolically set aside a king or a, a priest. That's not this word. This is the word for, for covered or washed with oil. A burn, somebody who's burned or beat up with open wounds, like the story of the Good Samaritan, the you got these open wounds the person takes and anoints them with oil. You cover the wounds with the oil to treat them. Jesus says if you're fasting, anoint your face with oil. Cover yourself with oil so people can't tell. It's this, it's this washing. It's the, in the Greek wor world, after you got out of one of the, the high-priced bathhouses, you would be anointed with oil, covered with oil. Lotion would be our American analogy for this. A runner after a marathon would, would be rubbed down with oil. This word in the New Testament is often translated washed or whitewashed. It's the word for whitewashed. Totally covered and cleaned with the oil. To be bathed in it. The woman who came to Jesus and broke the pound of ointment on him and anointed him with oil. A pound of it. That's this word. It's the word for anointing Jesus' body. 
So the idea here, I think, is not that the elders are covering you with oil in a literal sense while you're praying, but I think the image James is going for is the elders gather around you, they lay hands on you, and they're praying for you is, is covering you, like being washed with oil. So church was snowed out last week. You, you heard me talk about that. My kids, I threw them out of the house, as any good father would do on a snowy day. Our backyard has this massive hill in it. They go sledding in our backyard. Super fun. It was so much fun. They go down the hill, and they launch, and they, we built ramps, and we sprayed water in the snow. The, some of the dads were out there. We made this insane, insane. The, the safety inspectors definitely would have shut this down, but government was closed. What can you do? <laughs> so it's so much fun for like an hour. Hour number two, it gets a little hairy. Uh, a couple of kids launch into the creek. They go off the thing and splash into the creek, soaking wet, snow clothes in the creek. Geneva saves herself from going in the creek by steering towards a tree and aiming for the tree. And, you know, she was going like 10 miles an hour and the drop-off was this high. But in her mind, she was like 90 miles an hour about to fall off a six-story building and rescued herself. The so all the army of kids are coming inside, all the neighbors' kids and everything you know, streaming inside our house and frozen to the bone and there's tears and it's like the fun tears though. You know what I'm talking about on the snowy day. And so we put them in front of a fireplace and we take off their soaking gloves and their soaking wet hats and we give them all hot chocolate as they cuddle up in front of the, the fireplace. That's my analogy for this. You feel beat up and frozen and soaking wet from the world and you come to the elders for help and we don't have the anointing foil concept so much as much as when you come to the elders for help, it is encouraging to you, it's uplifting to you. It's like taking off the wet gloves and the wet hat and sipping hot chocolate by a fireplace. That's the best analogy I have for you. If you have a better one, let me know between services. But that's what James has in mind here. Come to the elders and they pray for you and it is like that kind of feeling, that kind of encouragement. Sometimes when we pray for people, we do dab oil on their head. We do so to represent this kind of passage, to represent this, this, this teaching, not because the oil gives them that, but it is a very tactile experience that we're trying to encourage them, let them know we're covering them with prayer. What's the person's response going to be to that experience? Do you think that would be encouraging for a person who's beleaguered in the faith to have the elders of the church lay hands on them and pray for them? Notice what it says in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. That word save is the Greek word sozo. It means keep them safe. It will protect them. The one who's weak and asks the elders to pray for them, this prayer will strengthen them. It will guard them from the evil one. The evil one who is, who is wanting to sift Peter, for example, and Jesus said, I will protect you. That's this happening. The elders praying for you, it's strengthening the weak. It's protecting them. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Like I said, this is not a black or white kind of scenario. Are you receiving it as a trial or a temptation? Sometimes people go through this weakness because of sin in their life. Sometimes people have physical sickness because of sin in their life. Not always, but sometimes. Do you know when that's happening? No. Is this sickness you're going through because of your sin or is it because of God's providence? Is this trial you're going through because of sin or providence or both? How do you know? You can't know. 
And so you're doing the best you can. You're trying to hold on to the Lord and you're fighting the faith and you are going to the elders and saying help. And this act of, of, of faith and this act of prayer here, it's demonstrating your submission to the Lord. And if you have sins, have confidence that they're forgiven from you. The Lord has taken them away. Not because the elders prayed for you. Your sins are not forgiven through the elders, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this act of coming and praying, it keeps you safe spiritually, and of course your sins are forgiven is what James means here. In other words, you're, you're being eaten up with, is this because of my sin or because of a trial? I don't know. Pray. And if it's because of your sin, have confidence your sins are forgiven. What's the takeaway of this? Verse 16, if you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed or, or strengthened. Always keep short accounts with the Lord. The point here is not just to confess your sins to the elders. Confess your sins to God. And if you have sin in your life that you're working through, confess it to other people. It can be the elders. It doesn't have to be the elders. That's why James switches here from the elders to one another. Confess your sins to other believers. If, you're going, if you feel weak, have people come around you. Have people in your Bible study. Have friends from church. Have people in your ABF or your small group. Have them pray for you. This is normal Christian living. It's okay to tell your small group or your Bible study, I am struggling. Would you pray for me? It's okay to have, you should have a few Christian friends that you can say this to. You can say, these are the sins I'm dealing with. Please pray for me. And when you confess your sins like that and you pray for each other, you will be strengthened. You will be strengthened. I have some examples from this in my life. I remember one time in particular back in California where I was involved with this college ministry and all kinds of crazy things were happening and it was wearing on me. It was wearing on my, my soul and there was an hour before a Bible study this one night and I just did not feel like I could face this group. I called one of my friends, Tyler was his name, who led a different Bible study a couple miles away from where I was, and I grabbed a couple of my friends from my Bible study, and Tyler grabbed a couple of his friends, and we met each other in a parking lot halfway, and we just gathered in the parking lot and prayed for that 45 minutes before Bible study. And it had such an effect of strengthening me. And I mean supernaturally, not just like, oh, I had friends and they prayed for me, so I felt stronger. No, I mean God answers prayer in that way. And the elders at IBC have all of these stories about people who have come to us for prayer and have been, in a physical sense, healed. In a physical sense, God has heard the prayers and answered them and healed them. And of course, that's not even ultimately what we're praying for. Because sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't. But you know what always happens? That the spiritually weak are made strong. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You want another example of a weak person beleaguered by oppression and persecution in the world who needed some other person to come and minister him and strengthen him, otherwise he didn't know if he could stand? There's a great example of that in the Old Testament, Elijah, and we will look at him next week. Lord, we're thankful that you strengthen the weak because that's where you receive glory. We know that she chose not the strong of the world to bring the gospel. You didn't choose the wise of the world. You chose the small, the weak, the insignificant. Because in our weakness, your strength is seen. 
in our frailty, your transcendence is evident. So Lord, we confess to you that we are weak vessels. We confess to you that we have doubts. We confess to you that the ways of this world erode our shore. We're so grateful that you have given us the means to pray. We're so grateful that you have given us a church with elders who are, who are godly and who want to take the needs of the congregation before the Lord. We're grateful that our sins are forgiven, not through our own righteousness, of course, but through yours. Righteousness belongs to you. There is no righteousness outside of you. It doesn't exist. But in you, in Christ, we have righteousness. And the prayer of the righteous person, it avails much. We're grateful that we can pray in you, to you, through you, and for your glory. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.